Shabbat Shalom, everyone. So uh, we are coming into the fall holidays. We're getting really excited about that. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you look at the map on the website because it's a new park we've never been to before. And it's not really easy to get into. So you're going to want to get that ahead of time and kind of figure that out. And then uh, come join us in our celebration of Yom Teruah, the first of a number of holy days that are coming to us. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start a new series. I think it's just going to be part one, part two, and then we're going to jump right into the upcoming uh, festival. So this is entitled Israel, Your Group Identity. This is probably the most misunderstood idea that we find in the New Testament. This idea of Israel, who is she, and what is our relationship to her? It's very complicated, very hard to understand. In fact, Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel, how the Gentiles and the Jews interact in this corporate identity that goes back to the days of Moses, when Israel becomes a nation. So we're going to step into this, discuss this over the next uh, uh, week, starting today and next week. And I'm going to go back to Babel, where kind of all of this finds its origin the Tower of Babel. And this is after three great rebellions against God. And then God separates himself from the nations and he scatters all of them in all directions. And then he takes one man on the heels of that, one man and one woman, and raises up a new nation, his nation, in contrast to all the other nations. And through his people, Israel, the nation of God, through his people, he will send his son, the Messiah, to offer grace and blessing and salvation to Israel first and then to the nations. And through this nation and its Messiah, he will ultimately reclaim all of the nations and offer all of the peoples everywhere his redemption. And everyone that responds in any particular nation will be saved and redeemed. They will be brought into the land, or I'm sorry, they will be brought into the Israel of God, not replacing her, but joining her as God's holy people. The Apostle Paul, again, refers to this as the mystery of the gospel. It's a mystery because it's difficult to understand. It wasn't disclosed until Paul himself got a revelation from God concerning this. And this mystery is still a mystery today. It's still often misunderstood, even in this very day. Now, the result of that misunderstanding, of course, is a lack of identity. Who are we, right? What is our group identity? It's very, very confusing as a result of mis misunderstanding this whole mystery surrounding Israel and the Gentiles. So today we're going to look into the mystery of Israel, God's chosen people, and how we can be a part of her. It's through this connection that we gain our identity as we participate with God's treasured people along with all of the related blessings. So, enter Abraham, or Abram actually, Abram and Sarai, the father and mother of us all. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the great awakening of Abraham and Sarah as God calls them out of Babylon. It says this, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your land, your relatives, and your father's home. Go to the land that I will show you. This is the great pilgrimage of the father of our faith and the mother of our faith as they respond to the call of God to leave their 
cultural contexts to leave their family and friends so that they can become the nation and people of God that he has planned all along. He says in verse 2 through 3, I will make you, Abram and Sarai, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Through you, every family on earth will be blessed. Hold that up for just a minute. It says, I will make you a great nation. Abram and Sarah, I'm going to make you a great nation. We know that the nation he's going to make them is the nation that he adopts as his own. Abraham and Sarah, they follow him and later covenant with him, obeying his voice and keeping his commandments. Through this nation, God will bless all of the nations. Now, because of this, Abraham and Sarah's obedience, the promise of Messiah and nationhood will come to pass. Genesis 26, 1 through 5, this is the story of Isaac, and he's down in the land that's promised to Abraham and his descendants. There's a famine in the land at this time, and everyone's leaving and going to Egypt, where there's food and resources and jobs. God says to Isaac, don't go. Stay here in the land. Sow in the land. I'm going to bless you. Let me pick up the reading. Genesis 26, 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar and Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give you the descendants of all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Verse five, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, Israel's going to emerge through the furnace of Egypt and become the nation of God. And the promise to Abraham is this. Those who bless the nation will be blessed. Those who curse the nation will be cursed. That's true back then. It's true today. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Israel is, in fact, God's treasured people. So, God ultimately delivers the children of Jacob, who is called Israel, out of the slavery in Egypt through Moses, and then offers them a covenant of nationhood. So, God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, and Moses, of course, is in Egypt. He says, Go and say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Okay? 
so important that we understand that Israel is the firstborn son of God. Israel is adopted by God, becomes a child of God. Him and his descendants are going to become the nation of God, God's treasured people. In fact, in Exodus 19, I'll pick up the reading. It says, two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they came to the desert of Sinai. Israel had moved from Rephidim and had come into the desert of Sinai. They had set up camp in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the descendants of Jacob. Tell the Israelites, you have seen for yourselves what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to my mountain. Verse 5. If you carefully obey me and are faithful to the terms of my promise, then out of all the nations, you will be my own special possession. Even though the whole world is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you must speak to the Israelites. The covenant of Moses is all about becoming the nation of God. Israel responds and says in Exodus 19.8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything looks like a big G-O, right? Looks really good. Israel becomes Amsegula, that's Hebrew for my treasured people. They belong to God. Israel is God's possession. He already separated himself from all the other nations and scattered them raised up Abraham and Sarah, who later would, uh, through their descendants, would become the nation of God. And now God would have his own nation among the nations. Amsegula, my treasured people. Israel, my chosen people. However, she was not very faithful. And in fact, she goes on to play the harlot for many generations until God finally separates himself from her and divorces her. The covenant's cast in the metaphor of a marriage. He calls her his wife. He describes Sinai as the marriage event. And later he says, after rebuking her over and over and over, but through great patience and long suffering, centuries go by, he finally separates himself. They still won't return to him. So what does he do? He divorces. Israel through the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah. Both of them participate in that uh, revelation of his divorce of his people. Good news is that he promises that he'll ultimately woo her back. Through a new covenant, he will marry her once again, and she will become his bride, and he will become her husband. They will become his people, and he will become their God. This is the great promise under the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied. And, by the way, this is where the church got it all wrong. The church viewed the divorce of Israel as a rejection of Israel, that God rejected his people. The church thought the new covenant would be made with a new people and that a new wife would replace the old one. And guess who that would be? The church, the Gentile believers. They saw themselves as a replacement of Israel. 
They saw themselves as the new wife, out with the old, in with the new. But this is not what Jeremiah prophesied. Jeremiah prophesied that this was not a rejection, but a chastisement. The divorce was a chastisement. And that through a new covenant, God would woo her back and she would become his bride once again. And he would become their God. This is what was promised through Jeremiah that the church got confused about. Now the church viewing itself as the new replacement of Israel and also viewing Israel as being rejected by God, it led herself to reject Israel too. The church viewing God as rejecting Israel also says we reject her too. And the church distanced herself from Israel. We'll talk more about this next week. To make sure that no one would be confused about who the new bride was, the Gentile church abandoned and hid all of the marks of identity related to Israel. They abandoned the Sabbath and and adopted a new day of worship. They replaced the biblical seventh-day Sabbath with the first day of the week called Sunday. She replaced the annual biblical holy days with new Roman syncretism like Christmas, Easter, and All Hallows' Eve, or what we know today as Halloween. And this is just to name a few. She gave up the dietary laws as well. And in the end, lost all of the earmarks of being identified with Israel. She gave up the signposts that marked her as Amsegulah, my treasured people, Israel. The big question is, did God reject his people, Israel? Paul is the guru at sorting all this out. Probably the least commented on in systematic theology is uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans, specifically Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're going to pick that up. We're going to look at that for a moment, but think about this. Did God reject his people? Were they cast away? Are they forever alienated from him? Did he replace her with a new and different bride, a new and different wife? Did he give his second wife a different identity, replete with new holidays, to serve as a new identity marker, different from that of Israel? Well, like Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I want to state from the outset, as we jump into Romans chapter 9 through 11, specifically today we're going to look at Romans 11, I want to state from the outset that Israel is the forever bride of the Most High God. She's the only bride of the Most High God. God is not a bigamist. He doesn't have two wives. God's not a polygamist. God has one wife, one bride, one people, Israel. Romans chapter 11, Paul answers this question that the church really got all mixed up about. Romans 11, verses 1 through 2. I say then, God has not rejected his people. God has not rejected his people. May it never be 
For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. For the second time, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He says it twice for emphasis, right? Not rejected Israel. Divorced her, but did not reject her. It says God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. I think about that, right? It's a brilliant argument that Paul is making. Foreknowledge. God foreknew Israel. God foreknows everyone. God knows the end from the beginning. There are no surprises with God. God was not surprised and said, oh my gosh, I chose these people and look what they did. No, God knew what they would do before he chose them. That's Paul's point. Paul says, God chose them precisely because they would reject his son. And that needed to happen because it's through the death of the son that we all can be saved. So he chose a people that would do that. That's why he didn't reject them. He knew ahead of time what they would do. Precisely the reason he chose them. Again, it's through that failure of Israel that salvation is going to come both to Israel and ultimately the nations. The new covenant is the very evidence that he's not rejected his people Israel. The new covenant, the new covenant. You know, I hear this all the time. I'm a new covenant Christian. I'm a new covenant believer. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, there's a new covenant, of course. Yeah. Well, what is that new covenant? And who's that new covenant made with? This is the eye-opener when we get back to the text and let it speak for itself. Hebrews chapter 8, 6 through 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. What's the problem? The covenant or the people? The problem's with the people. They were disobedient. All that you say we will do. And then they did the opposite. They broke the covenant over and over and over until it could no longer be put back together. It was irreparably broken. That's why Jeremiah says God's going to give a new covenant and and a remarriage with his people. So here's the new covenant. This is the new covenant that we all buy into. But what it states is at, 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 at certain places, shocking. So let's look at the new covenant. As quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. And this is quoting, of course, from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Did you see that? Who's the new covenant with? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Where the Sheol are the Gentiles. Where the Sheol are the Gentiles, right? You would think it would read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will establish a new covenant with a new people among the nations, bypassing Israel and Judah. Unfaithful wife. Spiddler on the roof, by the way. I don't know if you caught that. No. The new covenant is a covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There are no Gentiles within these words. Obviously, Israel is and remains the chosen people despite their failures. Aren't you glad you're still the children of God despite your failures? Aren't you glad that God is faithful even when we're not, right? So the new covenants with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Houston, we have a problem. This is the big marital breakdown between God and his people, leading to the separation, ultimately the divorce, but with the promise of restoration under a new covenant. Again, where are the Gentiles? Verse 11. And they, who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother. I'm sorry. Let's go back to verse 10. I skipped it. Verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Who is going to be his people? Israel, Israel, nothing's changed here. The new covenants with the same God and the same people. It's a restoration of what was broken in the previous covenants. This is God and his people, Israel. He says, I'm going to write the Torah. The word laws here in this passage is the Hebrew word Torah. He says, I'm going to take the Torah, which was part of the covenant that preceded this. I'm going to lift it out of that broken covenant and I'm going to put it into the new covenants. I'm going to write it on their hearts and on their minds so that they'll embrace it and walk in it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, where are the Gentiles? And we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead. Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Under the old covenant, they interacted with God through the high priest, through the priesthood. They they had this interaction, but it was through a human agency. God says in the new covenant, it's better. Each of you, each and every one of you, can have a personal relationship with me. You can know me. You can interact with me, hear my voice, and follow me. That's amazing. The new covenant's amazing in every way. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Who's the there again? Is it, is it Ireland? Scotland? Is it Africa? Asia? No. There is in reference to Israel. 
I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is redemption being actualized. This is salvation being extended to Israel. The recipients of the new covenant is Israel. Once more, we're the Gentiles in this new covenant. In our next teaching, we're going to show how the Gentiles actually are invited into Israel, the people of God, to participate with them as Gentiles, participate with them, the Jews, as Amsegula, my chosen people, as Israel. This is the mystery of the gospel. But suffice it to say, the Gentiles do not replace Israel. They're added to Israel. They join Israel. Through faith in Jesus, they're brought into Israel and forever identified with her as belonging to him. I remember in my previous church, spent 17 years in, in, a, um, in a church prior to this one. And uh, we, were, uh, we were studying with some Messianic Jews in the front range. And one of the pastors on staff was very upset about that. And he told us, you're not part of them. That's not who you are. You need, you need to stop that. You, you know, we're, we're, this is who we are over here. We're, we're Gentiles, we're Christians, and this is where we go to church. And, and you have no business going down there. You're not Jewish. And so, you know, they, he, he tried to get us to quit multiple times. And um, I, I, I just told him, I said, look, um, you know, they're, they're, they're the olive tree of God. And uh, we're, we're a part of them. We, we, you know, and he was saying, no, 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 no. They're a Jewish tree. There's two trees. There's a Gentile tree and there's a Jewish tree. And you're a Gentile. You need to stay in your own tree. You know, thank you for that comment. So um, I, I told him, I said, well, actually, there's only one tree. There's only one tree. There's not two trees. There's just one tree. Paul talk, talks about one tree and it is Israel. And we're actually grafted in. We're not our own tree. We're, we're a branch. We're not a tree. We're a branch that gets grafted into an olive tree called Israel. He says, nope, nope, there's two trees. You're misinformed, and this is part of the problem, and this is why you need to quit studying with them. I said, okay, well, just do me a favor. Show me the passage where Paul talks about two trees. He says, I'll do that. He says, I don't have it at hand, but I'll do that. So it was a long week for him as he poured through all of his books. And then he came to me and actually it was the, I think it was the next day. Might've been the day after that. But anyway, he met with me and he looked terrible. He just looked spent and exhausted. And I said, I said, what happened? You know, cause I thought maybe he came down with something. He says, well, he says, I looked for that passage. He says, I spent the whole night. I didn't even sleep. He says, I went through all my books looking for the two olive trees. And he says, there's nothing in Pauline theology about two olive trees. He says, I want to apologize to you. 
you're right. There's only one tree. There's only one tree. But you have no business going down instead. But, but I made some headway, right? I made some headway, you know? But this is how, this is how ingrained it is in the church that we have replaced Israel and we haven't. And this mystery is very difficult to understand. And we're trying now to, to disassemble 2,000 years of wrong thinking, and that can't be done overnight. Tradition dies hard. So, this Torah, this new covenant, ultimately is made with Israel. Even Jesus himself says that I've come to save the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles, bypass the Gentiles. Salvation is of the Jews and for the Jews. That's what he tells the woman at the well. Now that's a temporary thing. God's going to work with Israel first, extend salvation to her, and then through her, he's going to extend it to the nations. We, the Gentiles, come in later. We're a Johnny-come-lately to the party called redemption and salvation. We get grafted into these Jewish believers who comprise the olive tree of God. We get to participate with them, among them, as the Israel of God. It's through the new covenant that we get grafted in as a wild olive branch to the cultivated branches of of the olive tree of Israel. Paul's very clear, we're co-heirs, co-participants in the covenants of promise. What that means is this, when you get born again by putting your faith in a Jewish Messiah, you are gathered to those he already gathered, believing Jews. You are part of that flock with one shepherd, not two flocks and two shepherds. One flock, one shepherd. And you become one with his people Israel. That is your new group identity. You were adopted in Messiah into a new family. I got adopted. I, you know, I was adopted at birth because my mom, it was a teenage pregnancy. And so she gave me up for ado- adoption. Long story short, I got my new birth certificate. And on my new birth certificate... I got to see a whole new family line. I became one of the McClellans at that point. I had new aunts and uncles, new grandparents, a new ancestry, and a new future. When you get born again, you get a new birth certificate. Born again in Jesus, right? And you're now transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You get grafted into Israel. She's your new people group. You have new ancestors. Your father and mother is Abraham and Sarah. You have new patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob. You're part of a new clan with a new way of life. The Torah written in their hearts is now written in your hearts too. One big motley crew of Jews and Gentiles. Sorting out all their problems by the grace of God. So, next week, we'll learn more about this and how it works. But until then, explore and celebrate your new group 
identity. It's a game changer. Hope you enjoyed that, and uh, Shabbat Shalom.